Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased today to share insights from my recent conversation with Grant Ehat, the co-founder of Willard Retail, the successor company to JBG Rosenfeld, where he was a partner. Grant focuses on deal origination and capital relationships in his role at Willard, leveraging his expertise to grow the company, together with his current partner, Michael Majestic. The takeaways I have from this conversation are Grant's cold calling success in land sales leading up to his retail leasing activity early in his career, the multifaceted approach required for retail leasing, which is, we go into some detail, the formation of his company, Willard Retail, how it evolved from the retirement of his two former partners at JBG Rosenfeld, the stories behind the redevelopment of Cascades Marketplace, which is a large mixed-use project in Loudoun County, Virginia, and the development, ground-up development of Downtown Crown, another mixed-use development in Gaithersburg, Maryland. He also discusses his urban retail experiences, particularly with Walmart stores, both in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia. And finally, he ends up with his life priorities and his message of promoting kindness and listening to others, which is a great message. So without further ado... Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Grant Ehat.
So thank you, Grant, for joining me today on the Icons of DC Area Real Estate podcast. I've overviewed your background in the introduction. I met you when you worked for JBG Rosenfeld, a partnership between Rob Rosenfeld, whose father started his development company, and JBG Companies, who brought, sought a retail partner at that time. As JBG evolved and Rob Rosenfeld and Jim Garibaldi, your partners at the firm retired, you decided to start your own company, Willard Retail. Talk at a high level about your role at Willard and how you position the company in the market today. We'll get to the details later. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for uh, asking me to do this. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So the the reason we decided to start Willard was when we when we founded it was myself and Jim Garibaldi and Michael Majestic. Mm-hmm. And Michael Majestic is still my partner today. And Jim, as you know, has retired as of probably at least three years ago. We when we when we decided to do it, it was really uh, largely because I wasn't ready to stop uh, working. I really wanted to. to Try, you know, to continue to try to do some of the deals that we, the types of deals that we had done previously, mm-hmm. either you know existing repositionings or ground up. Although you know, it doesn't there hasn't been a lot of ground ground up that's occurred, you know, in the past ten to fifteen years. And when I felt that you know the Jim and I were always good partners together. Jim is very smart, very savvy, and as capable as any person I've ever met. And uh, Michael is, we call him Magic because of his name, Majestic. And so he's just being Magic for, and you'll hear me refer to him throughout the conversation as Magic more than Michael because I always screw up and say Magic. (laughs) So Okay. In in, in any case, and he has a skill set that I also felt was complementary with my skill set and with Jim's. When Jim left, it was not extremely sudden. There was, you know, some time to think about it. And Magic and I decided that we would be able to carry on, you know, the idea and the business plan of the, of the business without Jim if we found another capital partner, you know, to be able to help us grow and give us capital and hopefully LP capital for new deals that we, that we would find. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we went on a, you know, kind of a mini road show to talk to a a bunch of different capital partners. And we talked to a lot of different institutional partners, some family offices, but mostly institutional partners and got down the road with kind of an array from large insurance companies to one significant family office that, that had um, some of the larger names in technology that were backing this, this company. And that fell apart for a, a crazy reason, or that well, they lost interest for a crazy reason. So talk about the difference yeah. between your role and Magic's role, I mean, a little bit, mm-hmm. and then we'll jump into your background. Sure. So my role really has been and was sort of the originator of most of the deals, most of the opportunities that we did. That's what I did at JBGR. And that's what I do now. Okay. I also have some, I have not the deepest capital relationships, but a reasonable, you know, uh, pool of capital relationships. And so between the capital relationships, knowing most of the brokers, if not all of the brokers in the, in the retail investment community, having a 
very good knowledge of where of pretty much every retail asset in the greater Washington DC metro area and having a pretty good idea just in general about what works and what doesn't work. And then his skill set is he's got a better quantitative skill set than I do. He's more adept financially. He is he is an urban planner by training. And so he can take a take a shopping center site plan move pieces around, and I'll have a general idea like, oh, if we could get rid of this guy, we can create some residential here or something else. Mm-hmm. And he'll be the person who actually does the initial layout. Cool. We eventually get to a civil to do the real layout, sure. but he comes. He can see whether the idea yeah. actually makes sense. So these guys frame deals up right, right. up front. And he's got good instincts. He's smart. He's capable. Cool. He's got a, a good head for you know the types of tenancies that work and don't work. So let's let's go back to your origins here. Talk sure. a little bit about your youth and parental experiences, your sure. parents, etc. Where you grew up. So my parents, my mother, and my father moved to the greater Washington area. They moved to Northern Virginia when I was three. Okay. So I have been here. I was born in Massachusetts, but we moved here when I was three and started in Springfield, and then quickly moved to Arlington my parents bought their first house. We lived there until I was in fifth grade or the end of fourth grade and or no, the end fifth into fifth grade. And we moved to McLean. Mm-hmm. My parents built a house in McLean. And then not that long after that, my subsequently my parents got divorced mm-hmm. and my father moved out. And so it was my mom and my two sisters and I that uh, lived in that house for a period of time. And then my mom got remarried to my stepfather, who she is still married to, still lives in that same house in McLean. And um, it's, I go to visit them, you know, when I'm in town, at least once a week and talk to them multiple times a week. They were, my mom and my stepfather particularly were very good influences on me in terms of creating a, a strong work ethic, a moral code, and them appreciating my you know, the skill set that I had or just the, my nature and sort of living with it, I mean, or, or being comfortable with it. And I'm kind of a, a, a jokey person. I'm usually a pretty happy person. And I, at times, it, for me to focus was a little harder. And I think now, in today's world, I would have been for sure diagnosed with ADHD. <laughs> but, but then that, that wasn't a diagnosis. So, so what did your parent, what did your stepfather and mother do? So my mother did a variety of things. And one what I would say the the job that she was most proud of and that she liked liked the most was she ran a program after the Vietnam War, we had a lot of immigrants coming in from Southeast Asia, from Cambodia, Laos, mm-hmm. and Vietnam. And Arlington County, there was government money that went out to create programs to help these people get educated, help them get them jobs, and help them find housing. And she ran one of those programs. Hmm. And yeah, it was really interesting. And she and she did a really good job. And you know, those people, as you know, came the ones who came here have completely assimilated into American society and have excelled. And 
you know, maybe partially due to the people that came, but it also was due to the fact that the program was very useful for them in helping them to get established. Is that a federal program? Or what it was, was it? a federal program that then went to local jurisdictions. The funding then went down to local jurisdictions. Oh, cool. And my stepfather ran the, the, the court system for probation in D.C. That was his, that was his job up until he retired. And then he did a consulting gig for another 10 years after that. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, you went to high school then in Fairfax? I went to high school. I went to Langley. Langley, and, okay, um, sure. Loved it. And still had, you know, had a great time there. Had a great time growing up. Loved the neighborhood I grew up in. Still friends with some of the kids that uh, grew up in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I'm still very good friends with a lot of guys I went to high school with. You know, two of my very best friends in the world are, are two guys that I met when I was in sixth grade. And I still talk to them on a you know, weekly, if not you know, two times a week. That's great. Yeah. So then you went to JMU. And then I went to JMU. And why did I go to JMU? Well, I went there because I got rejected at UVA. <laughs> And so I ended up at JMU and I loved it. Had a great time and it's probably just as well that I went there because my grades were not stellar at JMU and who knows what they would have been at UVA. But as my stepsister will tell you and my my friends who went to UVA will tell you, I spent a lot of time at UVA on weekends, you know, maybe 15 to 20% of my time was there for a variety of reasons. Did you have I a girlfriend it. there? Or I had different girlfriends there and I had, yeah. you know, just the, sure. I liked the partying scene there. I liked the partying scene at James Madison, but mm-hmm. you know, it was fun for at, at both. I tell people, you know, the, there was, used to be a party at UVA called Easter's. And I don't know if you, right. know, you remember well, that. My son went there. Oh, he did. Yeah. Yeah. But Easter's was long gone by then. Probably. Yeah. But Easter's was a party that they literally had to shut it down because you had 100,000 kids descending on Charlottesville. And, you know, it was fun, but it was not, not <laughs> sustainable. No. So what did you study at GMU? Business. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, that may or may not have been, you know, the right decision to study that. I thought that that would be a good background, you know, for a job, you know, in, in business, you know, whatever that is. Sure. But... It was, what I learned is the things that I learned about business there were not that other than accounting and finance, neither of which I was very good at, really aren't, weren't that applicable to what I ended up doing, you know, and, and maybe marketing was applicable to what I ended sure. up doing. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I think I would have had better grades if I had been an English major or a history major, because at that time, and even today, I'm, I read all the time. And I am a good writer, and I think I would have done better academically because I would have been able to harness that ADHD mind to something that was more interesting to me. What were you thinking about in college, about career at that point? Did you have any sense? I had no idea. I had no idea. I will, I knew I wanted to be wealthy. That's all I knew. But I didn't know how I was going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So when did the real estate bug hit you? So one of my very first jobs was I was working for a company that sold um, mailing machine equipment. So, um, and the company that you've heard of the firm Pitney Bowes. Sure. I didn't work for Pitney Bowes. Okay. I worked for their competitor. Okay. That had 5% market share. Uh Pitney Bowes had 90. 
Yeah. And so this company, you know, we sold mailing machines and um, were you like sales? Openers. Yes, I was a salesman. Okay. And the job would basically be going from, to office buildings, mm-hmm. trying to find the office manager, trying cold to calling. find whoever cold calling. And I learned, I learned how to cold call with that job, and it was it was challenging. It was really challenging. You know, I tell people the story. We used to go into you'd go into office buildings. This is a day you know you wore a coat and tie. Of course. And you go into an office building, and you'd go to the eighth floor. You'd elude the the you know, the, the security guard, the doorman, and then eventually somebody, one of the the receptionists, would say, "Hey, you're not supposed to be no soliciting, right?" And you'd, you'd leave, and then go to the second floor, and then to the fourth floor, you mm-hmm. know, to avoid. Oh, the sure. Security guard, right? Yeah. Yeah. How successful were you? Doing I was that? successful at it, but I did that for maybe. A year and a half, no more than that, maybe two years at most. And I even received some acknowledgement there. I got in, invited to go to this training, which they only invited the better, you know, the people who were, you know, better salesmen to go to mm-hmm. in California where the home office was in Hayward, California. And, but a friend of mine from actually in seventh grade was, he worked with his father selling land and he, he convinced me to quit my job, which had, you know, a modest salary in order to come work with him and his dad and a couple other people to sell land uh, for no salary. And so I did that. I, you know, I saw it. I thought, well, straight commission, it's a straight commission job. And, Mm -hmm. but it could be more interesting, more lucrative in the long run. And so I did that. And then, you know, I had a little bit of savings. And I also, during the weekends, I had a painting company and so I would, I would paint houses on the weekends and I had a crew working for me during the week. And so the crew would be painting. I'd stop by that, that the job sites, you know, a couple times a day. And I wasn't, I wasn't a great painter. I didn't hire great painters. And if I apologize to anyone who's how, who's listening to this, <laughs> whose house I painted during that period, but I do appreciate you assisting me to survive, to, to, to be able to, to move beyond that. And so we did, I did that for a period of time. And that was, was all in Northern Virginia? Or? All in Northern Virginia. Okay. I was focused primarily in Prince William County. Okay. And I actually had a, back then, they, you know, the inf- getting information, there was no internet. You know, there was mm-hmm. the, the way that you got the data was tax records. Right. And so I'd either have to go down to Prince William County courthouse. to the tax, to the courthouse on microfiche, sure. read it, transpose yeah. it by hand. Of course. Uh, and then, yeah. or you could call the office, but they only gave you three addresses or right. three names per t- call. Call, right. So had to do that, and you had to disguise your voice periodically to call back <laughs> again. <laughs> it's just such a different, I mean, not even close to the world that we live of in course. today. Not even close. Yeah. So anyway, I had this wall, and every person in western Prince William County who owned 10 acres or more, I had it all mapped out. There you go. And so I would call them and, you know, consistently call them. And I ended up making enough transactions to make, you know, a decent living. And about... Were you selling to hold builders or what was the deal? Well, no, I was selling mostly to land assemblers, you know, people who were the middleman in between the the home builder or the the end. So land developers, basically? So like till you know that's being generous to the call Hazels, them. Bill Hazel, for instance. Or something uh, like well, that. he I 
I'm sure I talked to somebody in his firm at one time or another. Right. And at the time, you know, I talked to a bunch of the home builders that were around then, you know, mm -hmm. like Miller and Smith was, sure. was around then. Right. NVR was around okay. then in their yeah. first iteration before right. they yep. you know, ended or not ended, but went BK and then started over again. And, but it was really, a, you know, a, some names. Okay. Like here's a name that you might remember that we sold land to Russ Aronson. Mm -hmm. And Russ Aronson at one time, you know, was a very wealthy guy and then, you know, ended up with too many personal guarantees and ended up broke you know, and started over again as a residential agent. Bobby Kettler's another one. Bobby Kettler's another one. Yeah. There was a ton of people like that, you know, sure. Reed Wills, Reed you know, Wills, names sure. like that. So yep. those were the people that were yep. who we would try to deal with. And like one transaction I was involved with, there was a guy that owned 150 acres in the middle of Prince, Western Prince William, off of Devlin Road, and this guy, he he was such a character and kind of unscrupulous, but he had he lived in this property with all these dogs and horses, and the horses that he would feed the horses with day old bread that he'd get that was thrown away. So these horses were bloated oh my and not well, you know, not not healthy, nourished, no, yeah. not well nourished. And he sold, he sold the horses. And I don't know who, you know, what he sold the horses for, but the land was actually worth, you know, a fair amount. And he ended up, we ended up, what he didn't want to pay taxes. So he and I and my partner one multiple times drove around all over Virginia looking for farms for him to trade his farm into. Mm -hmm. And we ended up finding a few and he ended up buying two or three of them and selling his property. And I forgot who he, who he sold it to. Whoever he sold it to ended up losing it and went back to, <laughs> went back to the lender. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So how long did you do that? Three years. Okay. And then in 1989, which was my best year of working, working with him, the, you know, the world fell apart, started to fall apart. That's right. So from 1989, and I'm pretty sure I made that year hundred you know, $100,000, which back then was a lot. And, or at least for me, it was a lot. And we, I got married, bought a house. And then the next year went to making 1990, not much at all, you know, because no one was buying land. It was almost impossible. So I married, had the mortgage and not a very substantial income. And so I had to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? So I went and I found a job in where I'd found that job working for that firm, the competitor to, to Pitney Bowes, Fried and Alcatel, went back to the post and started looking for more jobs. And I found a job working for a company called Glenn and Company. And Glenn and Company was founded by a guy named Lyde Glenn. And Lyde was the former president of Weisberg Corporation. Oh, okay. Right? Sure. And so Marvin Weisberg was a very successful entrepreneurial developer. real estate person, developer, mm -hmm. who owned an array of assets. And the the Marvin, you know, made enough money and didn't really want to run the business anymore. So he outsourced the management agreements to, to Live Glenn. And so Live Glenn founded this company. And a guy named Rick Levy ran the, was an EVP for him and ran the leasing and asset management for him. Rick hired me to do, when I started, I was doing some office leasing and some retail leasing. And I, you know, while I'm doing that, I'm thinking, you know, trying to figure out like what, 
where am I going to focus? Because now I'm 31, had a baby by then. I guess I had a baby in 1992, my first son. And I'm trying to, I was 30. So I was trying to like, okay, what am I going to do? How, how am I going to you know, build wealth? What, what is my career going to look like? And doing retail leasing, I started thinking, well, this is, it's not as lucrative as office leasing, but it's more interesting to me, quite a bit more interesting and more challenging. And the people are, are how did you learn it? Did somebody teach you? I taught myself. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Rick helped. Now, Rick was a, a very smart, he is a very smart guy, careful. And, you know, I remember handing him leases. And back then, again, you know, these are tight leases where you're sort of filling in, you know, right, sure. some of the, the material that square footage and stuff. And again, the ADHD is still not resolved. And so I'm making mistakes. And Rick would look at the lease and throw it back at me and go, there are five mistakes here. See if you can find them, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I would say he did teach me, you know, a fair amount from that. But in terms of how to cold call, how to discern, you know, who, what made sense, what didn't, um, you know, mm-hmm. what kinds of tenants are, were viable, what aren't, you know, you just sort of learn through experience, osmosis. Was and this grocery anchored retail or what? what it was retail? all grocery anchored retail, except okay. for one little strip center that was unanchored. Mm-hmm. And I think Weisberg still owns it. So here's one interesting side story on that. When I got, oh no, that that's right. That that's that was my next job after that. Sorry, <laughs> I was moving to the next job. Okay. Yeah. So how long were you with the Weisberg? Or did you? I was lie? with Weisberg for a couple of years, okay. and then they lied was ready to retire, mm-hmm. and the business was going to wind down. They were going to, you know, the office management contracts were going one place, the retail contracts were going another place. And JBG at that time was, I think they were taking on the office leasing, the, the office assignments, the leasing and management assignments. For Weisberg. For Weisberg. Okay. And they, but they had, they also were founding a, a retail division. And I think they put an ad in the post again. I'm pretty sure I got another job from the post. And this job was, they were looking for a quote unquote retail leasing director. So I answered the, the ad, you know, the ad for that and met with, at the time, who was running that. So I had to interview with Rob Rosenfeld, who was, an, was a, a consultant for them. And Jim Garibaldi had already been hired. Jim was a property manager who they were turning into an asset manager. So I interviewed with Jim. And so it was... Jim was at Artery before that, is that right? Recall? Jim was at Artery before that. Jim's background was a CPA. That's when I met him. Right. He was a CPA, and then he went back and he went to GW and got his master's, and then, you know, but was went to JBG, and then they moved him to run this, this group. And this group, we had one client, one primary client, which was the Heckinger family. And the Heckinger family right. controlled multiple shopping centers yes. and a bunch of freestanding stores. And yes. This is prior to their to their bankruptcy. So I had two job offers then, and one was from JVG and one was from Saul Centers. And the Saul Center job was higher salary and the you know better properties, significantly better properties. But the JVG job 
for whatever reason, was more appealing to me. It was more appealing to me because I felt like the brand had a lot of upside and a lot of growth potential. And the Salt Salt Centers was established, but I didn't see the same growth. And, And the other kicker was I could do outside deals under JBG, meaning I could make side commissions. And they, despite the fact that it caused some consternation, you know, with, with Jim and it, mostly with Jim on, on initially, he got over that pretty quickly, but on whether that would be too distracting, you know, to, from focus on the main, on the main. So you were assets. focused on leasing at that point? I was strictly a leasing person at that point. I would do some modest, some modest investment sales, but mostly leasing. And that launched me and, you know, what doing, having that portfolio, the Heckinger portfolio to work mm-hmm. on. But something happened early in our, well, one thing happened is that Rob Rosenfeld then was, had left the firm that he was, he was at JMB and then came back and was helping his dad with their family assets. And then Rob was bored because he's my, he's my age. He and I are the same. And Jim are all right around the same age. And Rob wanted to do more. So he merged his family's assets in with JBG assets. And that's where we became JBG Rosenfeld. And the company then grew from being pretty small to being, you know, one of the bigger, more established firms in the, in the DC metro region for retail. And we, and that, so that was really, that was great because then I had a lot more interesting properties to work on, a lot more spaces, got a lot more exposure to different tenancies and different, you know, different, larger, more national tenants. And then when Heckinger's filed bankruptcy, that was super interesting because that put us in a place where there were these well-located store locations. And there, at that time, there were all these grocers and retailers that were in significant expansion mode. So it gave us exposure to do these, all these great, you know, anchor deals. And some, some of them are still around. So the deals we did at that period of time are still, still, so, still there. Side story. Yeah. I was approached by Jim and I financed a freestanding giant store. We did that deal. Right. Mm-hmm. In Fairfax. Yes. Yes. And that was with our credit tenant lease group. Lake Mason at the time. Okay. So it was a bond placement deal. Right. And it was pretty high leverage. It was like basically took all your costs. I think I remember that. Yeah, I do remember that. Can't do that today. (laughs) Well, actually you can with the credit. If if I hold credit was strong enough, you can get pretty close. Interest rates are such that unless the lease is pretty long, like 25, 30 years, you know, it's hard. Right. Because of interest rates today. But no, I do remember that. And I do remember meeting you at that time when we, you know, when we did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, you know, tried to do more. Kept trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But so that was interesting. So um, uh, of all the professions in commercial real estate, in my opinion, retail leasing seems to be the most hyperactive. <laughs> and you talked about your my ADHD. ADHD. Yeah. The business requires a multidisciplinary approach and an understanding center merchandising, recognizing the retailer's viability and customer base, negotiations with the awareness of your client's position of strength, etc. Do you agree with those assessments? Completely. Completely. No, I think 
that it it re- it re- requires a knowledge of a lot of different sectors and you have there's more factors that you have to take into account you know than you do with office leasing than with office leasing right talk about those well the you know one obviously the the tenant you know if you're if you're let's just say you're leasing a center from the ground up in order to be able to get financing you have to have a reasonable amount of credit you know reasonable percentage of the shopping center has to be quote unquote credit and also the right kind of credit like you know most of the centers that we developed usually have a grocery a grocery store as you know one of the one of the main anchors in the center and you know, we did we did a number of either of ground up deals or you know repositioning deals where we bring in we bring in a grocery anchor and then there was a, a period of time when we do a grocery anchor and a health club we only did one deal one ground up deal where we that was of a large size a large scale that did not have a grocer and the reason it didn't have a grocer is because adjacent to our site was a brand new Wegmans and that okay. was the king of Prussia town mm-hmm. center and obviously you're not going to get another grocer with <laughs> with Wegmans you know, we had right a regional Wegmans. mall right there too and you had a regional <laughs> mall another yeah half a mile away or quarter right. mile away it's a big retail area right right yeah that's interesting so uh you know, I mean, I my dad was a retailer, and I did some retail development, etc. Earlier in my career, so <clears throat> just understanding merchandising, how to position stores in a center, mm-hmm. and ideas like that, and then as you said, credit. But it's interesting, some tenants that are fairly new do extremely well, and they don't have credit. So you have to understand that, don't you? To, to really, you, you do have to understand that. You have to look at you know. The sizzle, you know, I mean, and there are certain tenants that have it and certain and some that don't, you know, and some tenants that you, you look at and you go or you meet that you meet the, the retailer and they have whatever it is that that drive that unique sort of style that you think, I think this guy's going to make it. I think that he will he will bring something to the center, some life, some some cachet that we don't have right now that will be really useful. And maybe he's, maybe he doesn't have credit, but he's got whatever that is, you know, mm-hmm. that je ne sais quoi, you know, the, the, just the feel that, that this is somebody that's going to, that's going to work for the center. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of leasing agents over the years and have, you know, seen people who sort of can pick, sort of cut through and say, okay, there's a reasonable, I understand the credit profile here. I understand that this, this tenant is got the a unique offering that will be appealing to enough people that it'll survive mm-hmm. and that this whoever's running it and this is for mostly this is mom and pops that we're talking about that they will be able to you know they'll have the drive and the initiative to make this thing work because it's as we know it's a really hard business and particularly you know the, the mom and pop retail business is exceptionally hard to to make it work and then for the chains, you know, you do, you can sort of feel, and sometimes when you when you go to Las Vegas and you'd see sort of the hot concepts and you'd see all these people sort of buzzing around, you know, the booth of the, like Boston Market when it first opened, it had that, it had that buzz. You know, nothing lasts forever. There's a great quote that I love that I heard from, and it, Milt Cooper said it, 
And there's, do you know the one thing that all retailers have in common? What is it? They all go bankrupt. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> that was, and I love the quote. And I've thought, I, mean, I think about it a lot and it's true. I mean, or, you know, maybe we, you and I won't live long enough to see giant slash awful. Or bankrupt. let's say Walgreens. Do you think Walgreens will ever go bankrupt? That's yes. It. I think so. Okay. Well, I don't know anymore. I mean, I haven't looked at their financials lately. Yeah, but I do I mean, know. You think about. I, I know. I do know this. Like, I know that, you know, some of the leases that they signed, you know, they sign, which may give them this uh, survivability rate you know, f- uh, factor to, to figure out is that they don't, they, their options are at the same rate as their initial term. Mm-hmm. So potentially they can outlive that. But I do, what I see though, is there's a lot of Walgreens stores that underperform to, at least sure. in this market, yeah. you know, to, to CVS. Well, you know, I mean, you look at Rite Aid, right? What happened to them? And they went under, right? Yeah. And yeah. then, of course, I, my early career, I worked for an affiliate of Sears Roebuck, Walmart Development Company, which became a regional right. mall. Right. General Growth bought them, and right. General Growth was bought by Brookfield. So it's just kind of this evolution of the business. And we look at department stores. Is there a is there one viable classic department store left? Well, Macy's. I mean, and how long will they be here? I don't know. I don't know if they're going to last another yeah. 10 years. Yeah, probably not because it's just not where people want to shop anymore. They're closing not, stores now. Right. Well, I guess Nordstrom. Nordstrom is still. But they're not a classic department store. They started as a shoe store. If you understand uh, their history, yeah. they, didn't, they don't have everything. They had clothing. That's that was true. their focus. They really weren't the classic department store. They really, I mean, Sears was the first. Well, then would you say that, you know, the sort of the successors to the classic department stores, and if you think that the classic department stores were starting with JCPenney or... Say Target. or Well, Target and Walmart Target the successors. Evolved out of Dayton Hudson Corporation. That's right. Yes. That's where my father worked. Right. So I, my dad was at Hudson's. Right. So I saw, and I've seen my whole life, I've watched the evolution right. of the retail industry. It's, right. It's phenomenal. Yeah, and Target is, that's right. And so I would say Target is a good example. But I don't know that, I mean, I guess Walmart isn't because they started their grocer and, you know, discount merchant. So Well, Walmart started as a discount store to compete with Kmart, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what Sam Walton saw. He saw he could, he could compete with Kmart, mm-hmm. which was S.S. Kresge's out of Detroit. Right. Which was a... Discount store, basically from the, it was a dime store. Right. Five and ten dime. Right. You know, street retail. Right. At that time. Yeah. Uh, again, a Detroit retailer. It was interesting how it grew from there. My dad managed the three largest department stores in the Detroit area. In different parts of the area. Yeah. The store that he, the first store he managed was 500,000 square feet, the store. The second wow. store was 700,000 square One feet. Store. And the third store was over a million Wow. Square feet in, in a different store. era too. Wow! Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the downtown Detroit Hudson yeah. store was the second largest retail store in the country behind wow. Macy's. Wow! Yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah, at that at when it was yeah. at its peak. Anyway, yeah, it's interesting to see how retail has evolved over the years. In taking on more responsibilities, including asset management and people management, what lessons did you learn evolving out of the leasing side? Well. Character matters, loyalty matters in both ways. You know, it cuts both ways. And 
you know, trust your instincts on people, usually. Not always, but usually. And when we had at JBGR, we had, you know, the, the hiring decisions for most of the most positions were done by, by the three of us, by Jim, Rob, and I, all, all of us. I mean, you know, we'd, and almost every major decision was, was really made by, by the three of us once we became partners. And we usually almost always agreed. And the, the people that we wanted to keep, we kept. I mean, we, we, we would rarely lose someone to a competitor. I mean, sometimes, you know, there were extenuating circumstances where somebody's, you know, spouse would move, you know, and then, or got to get a job somewhere else and they'd have to go. But usually the people that we wanted to keep were loyal to us and we tried, we were loyal to them and we tried to compensate them at the highest level we could to make them satisfied and to treat them, you know, as well as we could. What about moving from <clears throat> leasing, which was your focus, into asset management? Well, how, how did that, well, how that happen? Getting into, getting into that. And I wouldn't say that I moved, I guess I'm, I mean, I wouldn't ever now say, doing it. I'm doing it now, but I, that's not been my primary focus or forte. Okay. So what I, what I wanted is while I was doing leasing, I, I and no, not to be denigrating to leasing because it's the lifeblood of, of, of the retail business. It's the most important piece. But I just decided that I wanted to do more than that and wanted to, to use that as a springboard to be able to do acquisitions and development. And, and it was an, a good springboard for that. Because Did you learn how to underwrite a deal and to do a development pro forma? I mean, when did you learn doing that? I would say that I am adequate at that. But okay. what I am good at is knowing what works and what doesn't work and being able to hire people who, who can build models much better than I can build them. Sure. I can read them yep. and I can interpret them. Yep. And I'd say I'd learned that probably when maybe we started doing all the, those acquisitions pretty early. I mean, pretty early after the merger occurred. Mm -hmm. And, but it was a team effort. I mean, it really was the, the three of us really worked together well. Well, JBG had the disciplines too internally, right? Oh, JBG had the disciplines internally. And that was super useful for us to have them, you know, one for being able to um, sort of, well, one, they had the capital. The most capital. important reason was value from them was the was their ability to raise capital. Mm -hmm. And reputationally, that helped us, too, in terms of when we'd go somewhere, people go, yeah, I'm familiar with the J with JPG, JPG companies. Sure. And so it gave us credibility, you know. And, and in terms of what we built up, though, some of the things that we did that were there was some redundancies. Like we had a lot of similar people that would do similar skills to what they would, what they had, mm -hmm. but the structure that we had, they owned a minority interest in our platform. And we, so we had our own asset management. We had our own construction management. We had our own accounting, our accounting group and own property management, own property management and, and leasing. And the useful thing it was really useful for both. It was a very positive symbiotic relationship because they didn't have to build for a long time their own retail team. We were their retail team. So and for mixed-use projects, you guys would plug into all their mixed-use deals? Then, yes. Basically? Okay. Yeah. 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 Ground floor retail on yes. an office building or residential? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 
And we did that for you know, almost two decades. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked really well. And then, you know, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We can get to that later. Well, I wanted, we'll just evolve from that. And you became a leader and you recognized the ecosystem of JBG companies, obviously. It was yes. wide ranging and influential, as you just said. Yeah. Talk a bit about the culture and how it evolved as the original leaders that handed the reins to the second generation. And subsequently, now in the public company, as it's become, we discussed the idea of, yeah, okay. Well, I would say by the time I got there, it was almost the second generation. Right. Because Mike Glasserman. And- right. So the, when I got there, the, the, the managing partners were, well, when I started at, at JBG, at JBG Rosen, or excuse me, it was JBG Cummings when I first started. And the partners then were Ben, Mike, Don Brown was still right. there. Right. And they had some younger guys, Lou Rumford. Bob Brownholer. Right. And then those guys. And then, so I watched. Rob came in. Pardon me? Rob then came in as a partner. Rob then, yes. And Rob was, when I met him, he was an associate there. Okay. So Rob got elevated. A group group of guys about Rob's age, Brian Coulter, and a group of guys their age got elevated. And some of those other guys moved on. Bob Mm -hmm. Brownholer moved on. Lou Rumford moved on. And... So I watched a series of people come in and um, grow and become leaders in, in the company. And I saw, you know, that, that first or one and a half generation, you know, move on. And the person, the two people that stayed as managing partners were Ben and Mike. Mm-hmm. So Ben and Mike and then Rob got elevated and Brian got elevated. And then I watched the next generation come in after that. And the culture there, the culture at JBG was, was usually a very, a pretty positive one because it was sort of the best and the brightest. I mean, they hired, they were able to attract super bright, super capable people from, you know, the top, you know, top schools in the country. And, you know, that was interesting as well because what I saw, you you saw a lot of people that were really, really smart that, some of them had the ability to sort of use that intellect to be practical and create value, and some could not. And you quickly, you know, I, I, I could discern usually pretty quickly, like who I thought, okay, well, this person's going to make it or this person, they're not practical or they're not, their interpersonal skills aren't going to lead them to a place that this is going to be a long-term, you know, situation for them. And I was you know, good at sort of discerning who was going to be there and who wasn't. Very collegial environment. Very collegial environment. And a lot, great interaction, great synergy between, you know, at least between our two firms. So it was a lot of great synergy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of good, a lot of trust, you know. One thing I'll say for both um, Rob Rosenfeld and Jim Garibaldi, and you knew both, you know both of them, they both engender trust. They're both, you know, smart, straight up, honest, capable people. And so they, they engendered a lot of trust from the people at JBG. Mm-hmm. So talk about the evolution of the Willard Retail Group from JBG Rosenthal. Talk about that. Well, okay. So how that happened was JBG was trying to figure out what they were going to do to, keep, to move away from the funds. They had raised Fund 9, right. didn't look like they wanted to raise Fund 10, looked like some of the older partners were ready to, to definitively move on. 
some of the younger people wanted to figure out a way to monetize the existing platform. And some, you know, again, some people wanted to move on. And so, and we were content to keep things the way they were, but that was not what was going to happen. Rob Roosevelt was also ready to move on. So they, JBG, made us an offer to buy out the piece of, of our platform that they didn't own. They owned 33% and we owned the rest. Jim, Rob, and I owned the rest. So they, they bought us out for our piece. Part of that was to create a consulting arrangement. Rob moved on. And for Jim and I to stay in Majestic, to stay on as owners of this new venture that we were creating and called Willard, Willard Retail. And the reason we called it that was because that was the name of our street, of our street that we were on. And, you know, candidly, initially, I didn't really like the name. And now it's grown on me and I like our logo. And so I'm, I'm content with it and the brand is growing. So it's not going to change. (laughs) But I didn't love it initially. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I couldn't come up with anything. I couldn't come up with anything better. And so that's, that's why we, we left it at that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, initially we, we, for a few years, it was rather static. You know, we were, you know, kind of moving from stayed in the same building as JBG, but we were there to consult with them, but there really wasn't that much to do. And I was seeing this at the end of the time at JBGR as well, where after we did the King of Prussia deal in downtown Crown, I was having a hard time finding the next new ground up opportunity. And it wasn't just me. It was the whole industry. You know, there were just weren't, there weren't as many opportunities. The retailers were really scaling back at that point. So there weren't just wasn't as much to do. But again, I still wasn't ready to, to really stop. So we kind of waited it out. And then a few, I guess it was two years ago, we had an arrangement with JBG where we had a non-compete. And we, Jim had decided to retire three years ago, I guess, at this point. So it's just Magic and I. And we had a a young guy working with us, a guy named uh, Thomas Underhill, and another guy named Tom Sebastian, who had all been with us at JBGR. And so it was the four of us. And we triggered the we triggered the buy sell, and which meant that we could then go after JBG's management, the the third party management leasing uh, assignments, and we waited out the six months and went after them and brought over all all of those third party accounts, and we had to hire you know property manager, asset manager, and so on, and we hired almost all the people that we hired were former JBGR employees, which had become JBG employees, and then we brought them back. So we're now at 15 headcount mm-hmm. and growing the, the platform. It's probably 3 million square feet under management leasing and at least 5 million of, of, of sorry, of management and about at least 5 million of leasing. So do you own assets as a company? We do own assets as a company. Yeah. And each and each deal is a standalone deal and capitalized in on a standalone basis. Mm-hmm. They're, they run the gamut from core, you know, grocery anchored center in Lorton, Virginia that we bought from Eden's. It's uh, a giant anchored center. And our capital partner in that is you know, declarations in the general partnership with us. And then Northwestern Mutual is the LP and also the debt. 
and to... Was that a GFS center originally? No, it, it was, was an Eaton center originally. Originally Eaton's Eaton, developed Eaton's, it? Eaton's developed it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Because I know they bought a lot of the GF, GFS portfolio. They did, and I'll get to that, or I can get to that now if you want. We can talk about that. So that's actually one of the more interesting deals that we have right now. So there's a deal that FS developed a property back when they had their development team, Cascades Marketplace in right. Sterling. Yes. And at the time, when if you remember, when that came up, that was you know, really cutting edge. You know, they got best in class retailers to, you know, to go, to go into the property. And, you know, it would, had a main street feel, which was for a suburb, for suburban was unique, relatively unique at the time. Yeah. Since you're talking about the history of that, yeah. just I'll give the listeners a little background. Sure. So that land was owned by a joint venture between Kettler and the BF Saul Company at the time, mm-hmm. or Chevy Chase uh, Bank, mm-hmm. which at that point was a joint venture equity source. This goes back into the 1980s, that land, when it was subdivided. Cascades was a major residential development, and then the retail centers sites, Giant Food had the first right of refusal because of the relationship between Giant and the Saul Company at the mm-hmm. time. So, uh you know, GFS Realty ended up developing that among other properties that they had relationships with. And so leading up to the fact that when Aho took over Giant Food, they wanted to sell all the assets and Edens ended up buying those assets, right? Probably two to three years after the Aho acquisition, if I'm not recall. I think you're right. Yeah. Roughly. Mm-hmm. So that's a little backstory on mm-hmm. that property. Go ahead. So... Edens was positioning the property to be able to redevelop it and create a, a mixed-use environment. And what we have been doing for the past three or four years is looking for opportunities like Cascades to be able to do exactly that. And we had done it a couple of times, but one time we had done it very recently nearby. We bought I bought it a Regal Movie Theater, uh, my firm, and then Andy Brown. Brian Cullen and I bought this Regal movie theater, which at you know pretty high cap rate, doing not very strong sales. Where is that located? That's in Sterling, very Sterling. close okay. to this to this property. Mm-hmm. And that property, that whole area was it's near Countryside. If you remember Countryside right. Shopping sure. Center, Route so Seven. Was, right? Yep. That was originally developed by a guy named Bob DeLuca. That's right. Who ended up in the big house? Yes. <laughs> yeah. For I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what, but mm-hmm. anyway, he he ended up he developed that and a couple other properties around it, and we bought this movie theater from Realty Income with the intention of we knew that the theater wasn't going to be long for this world, and it was struggling along, and then COVID happened, and they shut down and never paid us another dime in rent, and that pushed us to get the entitlements through, you know, Loudoun County and get it approved for town for two over twos. And so we ended up getting it approved for 166 two over twos and sold it to Beezer Homes 2021, 2020, 20, I can't remember if it was 2021 or 2022, but it was one of the more successful deals that we did. But what that sort of was a, that was proof that our thesis of, you know, taking this retail land, which was already graded. And so you have some of the infrastructure already in place and some of the, 
you know, land development issues are mitigated by knowing that, you know, it's already a graded site. So when you acquired that site, it was the, the freestanding theater was sitting there vacant. So no, it they, wasn't vacant. They were paying rent. Oh, they were. But struggling. Okay. So when they closed, yeah. did you demolish the building or no? We so sold it to that. Beezer. We sold it to Beezer with the existing structure in place. We uh -huh. had a bid. We had a bid to what we knew. We knew what it would cost to demolish it. And so that was just, you know, taken out of whatever, what they ended up paying us. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that, the success of that and its proximity to Cascades Marketplace was led when, what it's sort of interesting, Edens had a buy-sell arrangement with J.P. Morgan, who was their capital partner in the deal. They triggered the buy-sell and then Edens, I mean, J.P. Morgan did a, went out, did a search and talked to us and a couple other firms and did to do presentations and analysis in terms of what we would do with the property and you know how we would go about it and the valuation the buy we bought in. So anyway, we bought in and we now as of the property at that time though was not zoned, we had to take it through the the How much process. land are we talking about? 30 30 34 acres. And this is total. right adjacent to Cascades Marketplace? or where, where Well, that? the way that, if you remember Cascades Marketplace, it's basically four quadrants. Right. Home Depot owns their quadrant, mm -hmm. which is, and then there, there's a piece behind Home Depot, which was big box tenants at one time, probably had linens and things and sports authority and tenants like that. Okay. Approximately 10 acres. Mm -hmm. Giants, another 10 or 12. And then, it, then the other piece was Marshall's and Gold's Gym, which we replaced with One Life Fitness. So now it's One Life. Marshall's is gone. We're negotiating with LOIs with some new tenants to replace Marshall's. That's another 10 acres. So what our vision was to take the piece behind Home Depot, the 10 acres there, and rezone that to give us some flexibility to either be able to do towns, two over twos, or apartments. And then the um, piece, which is occupied by One Life and the former marshals, we got that entitled to do up to 350 apartments. Mm. So what my, and I'll give Magic credit for this. He was, he wanted to give us flexibility in our entitlements to be able to do whatever use sort of had the highest and best value when we were, when we finished this entitlement process. And um, I said, you'll never get that approved. No counties, they like more specificity than that. And I was wrong. And they, we ended up getting that flexibility. So we hired a brokerage firm, Enterprise Realty, the Stephen, uh, Steve Varga and his son, Stefan, to go to, to market and sort of take it out to and see, you know, prove out, okay, what is, you know, who, who will pay, you know, the, the, the most for this land at this point? And so we got bids from apartment developers. We got bids from townhome developers. We got bids from land developers. And the, the apartment piece is still, we still have seven years, at least seven years to go because of the one life lease. So anyway, we got the bids for that. And high, the, the highest offers were by far for townhome developers. And so anyway, that's where we ended up going. So um, talk about how Loudoun County was able to, I mean, are they becoming more open to residential development now because so what's I, going on with the data centers and all the things going on out I there? Mean, so, what is so, your sense of that? Selectively. 
I mean, and it depends on the supervisor. We, the, we, we developed a good relationship with the supervisor of this district, which is the Algonquian district, Julie Brisman. And Julie was the supervisor of the, the same supervisor that we got the movie theater approved under. And actually, it was sort of interesting. During that process, there was a, a supervisor that we started with who ended up during the midway through it, midway through our entitlement process, the election occurred. And the Suzanne Volpe was her name. And Suzanne lost. And so we had to start over. And as you know, it's who these political processes are completely dependent on the supervisor of the specific district. Sponsoring it. Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we're like, oh my God, you know. So we, and we had Suzanne. Suzanne was, was with us and, you know, it's a, it's a appreciates smart growth and so she was she was an advocate she loses we had to start over we didn't know we didn't know julie at all and we ended up developing a relationship with julie and julie's also a progressive thinker and you know she believes in smart growth and good mixed-use development so julie approved of the movie theater deal and then we started over again with the with with cascades marketplace so that was a probably a two-year process though to, to go from the inception of the idea and we worked hand in hand, you know, with the county, with staff, met with citizens, met with the planning commissioner a number of times and, you know, to come up with a program that everybody could, could sign off on. Let me add something for the listeners. About four episodes ago, I interviewed Art Fusillo of Lerner Corporation Art talks about the history of Loudoun County zoning in his, in his episode and the evolution of it being very wild west to now pretty well structured, it sounds like. Yep. Much more urban or oriented than what it used to be. But his stories were very interesting about how they laid everything out on a whiteboard basically back then. So it's a whole different process, it seems like. I think it is, and I would agree. I mean, it is. It's a. It's a very. It's a much more structured process than it was when art when art started. For sure. sure. <clears throat> so, looking at your past and current portfolio of properties, talk about how it evolved over time, both in the types of properties and the focus of acquisitions and development. How did you adapt to the current markets and competition? Well. You know, it's funny. I mean, what I, the way we the way we adapt is we you know constantly assess like what works, what doesn't work. You know, and what are you we, seeing today that's different than say 10, 15 years ago? Well, I would say one thing that I mean, two, in two years ago, retail was a dirty word, right? You know, and nobody wanted to invest in retail, and so it was really challenging to find capital that was willing to do anything. Right. You know, and now in two years' time, all of a sudden, it's you know the second best asset class now. You know, or you know, maybe maybe third. Is that the infusion of capital by the federal government, basically, to the market, where there's a lot mm. of con- you know a lot of cash now for consumers, and therefore they're saying, so what do we do with all this money? I think to- that people were terrified that there was a dynamic change during COVID. Right. But there, but there, and there was, and there wasn't. Not in retail. I mean, I everyone thought, oh my god, everyone's going to have everything delivered. That's it. It's over. You know, it's, it's finished. And that didn't turn out to be to be the case. No. People still need to congregate. They want to congregate. They still, for whatever reason, they still like going to the grocery store mm-hmm. and picking out their produce themselves. 
you know, this, and it, maybe it's because deliveries haven't, aren't as clean as everybody thought they would be or as mm-hmm. error free. Maybe AI will be, you know, a game changer and change that. And maybe robots will become, you know, robots and AI will change it, but, you know, it seems, still seems a ways off. So I would say one of the things that we are pretty good at is seeing trends and seeing things evolve. And I thought years ago that at least 50% of the movie theaters in this country were going to go away. And I, I know I'm right about that. <laughs> and, you know, COVID accelerated that well, process. Streaming is and just... streaming. I mean, people, you know, my kids almost never go to the movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Never. And so, you know, it's sort of handwriting is more than on the wall. I mean, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, and then in terms of. But what about entertainment in general? I'm not talking about movie theaters per se. Okay. Isn't, you know, I, I read about what Edens is doing in some of their centers, this kind of this whole entertainment engagement type of thing. So what are you seeing as far as that evolution? I will, I think that things can be over, I think trends can be copied too many times. Okay. Like I would say that there are way too many food courts all over the country. And food I've, halls, food too. halls. Sorry, food. I called. I shouldn't have. You're right. Food hall, which is basically a food court. I right. mean, maybe a little, you know, maybe more upscale. But I, I think many of them will fail. And I've seen, like for instance, I'll give you an example. There's one that I go. I have a house in Delray Beach, Florida, and this beautiful new food hall or food hall opened up called Delray Marketplace. It's half a block off the main drag, which is Atlantic Avenue. And it's a purpose-built building with parking above, right above the food hall. And at the time, they had, you know, good best-in-class concepts throughout the food hall and a bar, you know, second-level second bar. And I walked through it, and the first time I walked through it, I go, this will fail. It will fail. What told you that? It, it wasn't vibrant enough from the beginning. And, it, and maybe it, was, it opened... After COVID in Florida, you know, COVID didn't really happen very long in Florida. It was over pretty quick. Pretty right. quick. So people wore masks. Down right. There, you know? Right. <clears throat> That's right. And so I, I just looked at it, and the the offerings just weren't unique enough. Even I mean, they were reasonable, but they weren't quite unique enough. And I'm not sure you can make them unique enough. I just feel like there's just only a couple of select places where it's really going to work. I'd say Union Market is an anomaly, in my opinion. I mean, um, there are a number of other ones I don't even want to say because I don't want to you know, be negative, but there are a number of ones I've been around recently. I, look, I go to a place like Italy in New York, and how can you get Italy. that environment? You know? It's so hard to recreate something like that. So what I would say is, and I watched, and I've done placemaking, and placemaking is so hard, and it's an art more than a science, and it even then it's, it's hard to make it work. You know, it's just hard to figure out exactly how it's going to work. And so I'm, I, I'm maybe I've I've seen enough that I kind of move to a more pedestrian view of retail. And I like good solid retailers that are, some are credit worthy, some are not, you know, some have like what we talked about earlier, you know, that exuberance or that ability to really run, you know, mom and pop business. But in terms of 
the coolest, hottest concept and giving him $300 a foot to build out of space and, you know, getting percentage rent in order to get him. I've never done a deal like that. And I probably never will. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in that kind of retail and never, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, if I owned an office building where I had to have that, you know, this cool retail in order to lease up the office building, I might do that, but that's not what we own. Well, let's talk about ambiance at a retail center a little bit. Okay. So I go to a federal shopping center and I know, I know I'm at a federal shopping center. Yeah. Why do I know that? I think you know that because of the quality of the design. I think they're really solid in terms of the quality of their design. And, but there's an aesthetic that they have that they know how to replicate, which not everybody knows how to do. And I would say they do it well. I'd say Eden's does it well. And it, it, but it takes a lot of capital to be able to do that, you know? And a lot of the assets that Federal does that are assets that they've controlled for a long time. So their basis is low enough to be able to do it. Well, I look at Pike and Rose and you get it. It's a unique yeah. setting there. Agreed. And actually, interesting enough, so there's, I'm an investor in a deal not far from there where some, Friends of mine bought an office building and allowed me to invest in it. And it's a surface parked office building, but walkable to Pike and Rose. And they entitled it for townhouses. And it's a home, it's going to be a home, it's a home run deal. But the reason is because it's in you know, a good spot in Montgomery County, but it's walkable to Pike and Rose. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned the project earlier I wanted to get into. It was yeah. one of your bigger projects from downtown Crown. Talk yeah. about that project in Montgomery County and and what were you trying to do there? Well, that was an interesting project. And so the, the history on that is that piece of land used to be a farm. One this of the last Gaithersburg, Maryland. Maryland, one of the last working farms in right. in Montgomery County. And it was owned by the Crown family, which is why it's called, you know, they call it the Crown Farm. And the land was purchased originally by two or three home builders, Pulte, and I forget the, maybe Kehav, Kehav Nanian, and then mm-hmm. maybe one other. And they ended up losing it in the recession of 2008. Right. So they lost it in the recession of 2008. Bank of America foreclosed. They, it, they sold it to Westbrook. Westbrook then was had to take the plans that were in place at that point. And there was... Was this Terrabrook or just Westbrook Partners? It was... Terrabrook was... It was Terrabrook. It was Terrabrook. This was, you know... It was, okay. it was Terrabrook. Tom Delisandro's group. It was, a, yes. So it was an affiliate right. of, of Westbrook. It, it was, was Terrabrook. Yeah. So Terrabrook was overseeing it. Terrabrook then, you know, was, had to do a lot of the infrastructure work. And they had to pick someone to be able to create this retail town center. You know, that, that was pretty critical part of the overall project. And the original people that were in it had come up with a, a vertical plan that I never believed. It felt like that that I just said, this is this is too dense for this environment. You need to have a surface parked grocery store here or it's going to fail. And so we came up with a new plan. Talk about the location a little bit. Well, the intersection. Sure. The, the, it is at, at the intersection, it's 270, 370 and Fields Road. It's at the intersection of Fields Road and 370. So it's near the Washingtonian. It's, yes, yes. It's right one road over from Washingtonian. 
correct? Which is a big retail center. Which is a big retail center, Rio, I think it was called at the time. Yes, the Rio. Rio. Uh And we, and that was a concern because there was a lot of retail already there. And so we were like, is there, can we create this? Can we not create this? But we, we put it under contract. We sold Terrabrook on the vision of what we were, of what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. And they believed it. And we then went out and did a, you know, talked to a bunch of different grocers and we ended up deciding at that. And at that time, Harris Teeter was, I felt had, had more cachet and was more interesting than, than some of the, than Safeway or Giant. And this time, I don't know that I think that anymore, but we ended up doing the deal with them and it was going to be what they wanted was, you know, a surface parked traditional store. And we had some small stores around it. But then the rest of the project was going to be, the majority of it was going to be mixed use. It was going to be first floor retail with apartments above. And the, here I ran, we ran into a problem because the problem that we ran into was that JBG didn't believe in the residential at that site. They were okay with the retail, but they didn't believe that the residential was accretive at the pricing that you were going to have to pay for. And I don't even remember what it was, 35 or 40 a door, something like that. And they didn't believe that 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 would be a viable project. So we had to create an incredibly complicated structure where we did in that mixed use building. We had Zudo came in to do the apartments. So they were the developer on the apartments. We had one, I think, I think Northwestern Mutual was the lender for, I can't remember if they were the lender for both the retail. It had to be. They had to be the lender for both the retail and the residential, but you know there were different partnerships, you know, for each deal. So it was really, it was, so it was really a condominium regime. Then, yeah, it was a condominium regime. Interesting. Yeah, and so and it was a lot of units. So it was like five hundred, almost five hundred and fifty apartment units. So it wasn't, it wasn't did a you small. Did housing in there too? We did not, but, but nearby, right. and now then Terrabrook went out and started selling, you know, parcels to these different you know oh, home builders. Right. And if you go there today, it's a, you know, it's a super successful project. The retail is successful. The residential is successful. There's an array of different types of, of residential product in there. There's apartments. There's two over twos. Is it just gross towns. anchor or do you have other anchors? No, we brought, so we got LA Fitness in for a health club. Okay. One of the, and this is, you talk about the retailers that are, you know, unique, that sort of add the cachet to be able to, to draw the customers, we went to great American restaurants and great American restaurants are prime. Almost all their stores are in Virginia in Northern Virginia. And they are, they are run, you know, a very tight operation. They, they have, I'd say their food is okay, but they appeal to a lot of people, to a broad array of people. And they had never done a store in Maryland or Montgomery County before. So we had to convince them to come across the river and do this deal. And their deal, and this, this fits sort of the model that I, I'm comfortable with, is they'll take a lower rent, but they put in all the TIs. Mm, interesting. Yes. And I don't know if they still... Do they have a standard package that they do for all their stores, other restaurants? No. Every, every store... They customize it. They customize every store. Yeah. And so they did a coastal flats in that location and, and it's a beautiful store. It's still there, still doing, you know, strong numbers. And so we built that, I guess at this point, you know, that's 15 years ago and they're still there, still, still doing well. But 
that was a you know, that project actually turned out to be financially one of the more successful projects that we did. We sold it sub five cap, you know, on a projected NOI. Insti- because it was institutional like, buyer. Institutional buyer. We sold it to the predecessor to to RPAI. We sold it to RPAI. And now they, they merged with Kite. So Kite now manages. Oh, that's owns interesting. It. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And do you, do you don't manage it anymore? Oh, no. We, when we sold it, I think we had a one-year agreement. Or maybe we didn't even have a one-year agreement. I think RPAI took it over, <laughs> took it over right away. Yeah. And, you know, and that was one of the things, one of the, the, the lessons I've learned throughout my career, you know, is that you build these things. Don't fall in love with any of your real estate. Because... One, it may not stay as appealing to you, you know, after 10 years. Yeah. And two, you know, if, if the money can be put to a better use and they're, or a better yield, then, you know, take it. And part of the problem, though, was that the money that we were using was high octane money and is IRR driven. And so, you know, we, and we really weren't the ultimate decision maker. I mean, you know, we, we didn't have the, the, Luxury of saying, oh, no, we want to keep this. Was that part of the JVG fund? That, deal? that was in JVG fund. That was in fund five, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was all. You were a JVGR at the time. That was a JVGR. Yep. Okay. Yep. So how do you see the retail business evolving? And where where is it prospering from your perspective right now? I mean, I would tell you that uh, right now our centers are as least as they've ever been in my career. There were, we, and a part of that is due to the fact there's been a lot of attrition and the worst centers are, you know, gone and they've become something else. But also, you know, there hasn't been any new, haven't been any new shopping centers built in 10 years. You know, this is a selectively, you know, there've been properties built or a few, some ancillary retail, but not on any significant basis the way it was during sort of the heyday of my career. You know, for good or for bad, you know, that's that's just so are there retailers expanding right now? And if there are, who and why? Well, I read an article just recently. Walmart is said they want to do 150 new stores. Really? Yes. But they want to do urban? No. No. Nobody wants to do urban. They don't want to do urban anymore. Nobody wants to do urban. That's interesting. And those urban stores that we did, and we did four of them. Right. And that was that was actually one of the more enjoyable parts of, you know, sort of the projects I ever got to work on was when Walmart was doing that. And they they had a, they had a CEO at the time that was pretty progressive and he wanted to do, you know, where where was Walmart? Where were they not? And where were they weren't was urban, you know, dense environments. So there was a period of time when they were doing smaller format stores, 80,000 feet or so. Mm-hmm. 80 to 100,000 feet in, in fill locations. And they were being... Think of one on Georgia Avenue. Right. That was the first one. Yep. And Definitely. I tried to buy that site and got outbid by Folger Pratt. And then all the rest of them, except for the, the one in Southeast, which, or, which they never opened, we did. And we did the deal at 77H in near Gonzaga High School. We right. did Fort Cotton. We did Tyson's Corner, right. and we did Route 1 in Alexandria. And How are those stores doing? Route 1 is doing well. That's fine. But again, that's, that's not all that unique. It's surface park. Mm-hmm. Tyson's Corner, I think, is doing well, but that, and that's structure park. 
And then the other two, 77H, unfortunately, is closed. And that one obviously didn't do very well for an array, you know, sort of a, an array of reasons. Among them, it's sort of a, almost a second-story store because of this, the, the topography of the site. And then it is an urban store, so they had a lot of shrinkage at that store, I think. And the format was always tough. It just never was quite big enough for what they wanted. So what's that store now? It's vacant. The Georgetown University, we sold the building to, we sold the whole thing, the Walmart and the apartments above it. And by the way, that was the first store, and no, I know it was the first Walmart in the United States that had residential above it, and might be the first one in the world. I'm not positive about that, but the first part I am certain of. And that was the first one. And I was super proud of that. And we won the ULI um, Deal of the Year Award for that, for that, for that project. And that um, was on a ground lease. The city had ground leased the land to a developer who wanted to build an office building there, and they were running out of time. To, there was just no, no, no demand. And then we, but they could by right do residential and do retail. And Walmart was doing this program, and so we ended up making a deal with the developer. And so it was a, you know, pretty complicated structure, but it ended up working working well. Walmart paid a ground rent and paid for to build their shell. So again, it's that same idea of mitigating your, you know, the developer's risk by getting the retailer to share some of the risk of the of the physical plant. So if you were if you owned that property today, what would you do? Well, Georgetown University bought it, so okay. we sold it to Clarion, and I would do exactly what Georgetown's going to do. So Georgetown bought it, and they're going to. Uh, use the apartments for student housing Mm -hmm. and the store I would if I'm Georgetown classrooms you could do classrooms you could do indoor law school right there right you could do classrooms you could do indoor health club I mean you could do any any number of things or I might try to rent it I mean Walmart is still on the hook for another 10 years at least. Oh, so it's a, a covered land play for them to some extent. To some extent. They're still getting the rent from the, from the Walmart. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, again, though, it's disappointing to me that, that the Walmart didn't survive there. And they probably would have been happy if it did, and then they just owned the, you know, the apartments above. Because they bought it mostly for the residential, I would, I would assume. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's cool. So in addition to the restructuring of the retail market, we're now in restructuring of the office market, contributed to, to greatly by the pandemic and its aftermath. Yeah. How are you adapting your mixed-use properties to compete today? Only residential and retail, only residential retail, or are you interspersing other uses? Well, we looked, like for instance, there's a property that we own in Manassas. Park Ridge uh, Shopping Center. And we it's a partnership between us and Buchanan. Buchanan I think the Buchanan Partners is there. And we we bought, so we bought the center and adjacent to the center, there is um, a data center overlay district. So I thought one of the uses that we could potentially do there would be data center. But it is also adjacent to on two sides to the Manassas battlefield. And when we bought the property, the supervisor, the chairman of the board of supervisors told us that she did not want to see at that site, she wanted something attractive. She didn't want to see data centers and because she didn't think they were attractive. 
And so that idea went out the window. But I am totally open to finding a site that we could buy, that we could do, either it's a, whether it be a vacant office building that we could do data center on, or even an existing shopping center. I would have done it here. If, because that, as a land, for the land, for the land value, there is nothing that's as worth as much nothing as data close. center land. Not even close. Not even close. Even downtown, even midtown Manhattan, I don't think they pay land for the same numbers. It's crazy. It's really interesting, yeah. you know? And it sort of changed. Like I was talking to a friend today who told me that another friend, somebody you've interviewed, Taylor Chess, and that Taylor's really what he's focused on. Well, I'm blaming him, you know? I mean, he's got really good instincts. And Taylor's out looking for land, you know, that he can do data centers on. Well, yeah. I mean, Art Fusillo talked about a sale that the Lerner Corporation had in Prince William County recently, which was the largest land sale, I think, in the history of Northern Virginia. Right. Yes. Which was their former regional mall site in Gainesville. Right. That they sold for a data center park. That's right. Yeah, that was one of the Big parcels number. that sold. They waited for that. $200 million or something? For like that, that rezoning to occur. Right. Huge number. I know. It's crazy. It's really, really astounding. So what we ended up doing at Park Ridge, since we couldn't get that approved, we got residential approved. So we got approximately, I guess we can do up to 300 uh, townhomes and two over twos. And so we're going to keep a portion of the property. There's a regal there now. That first phase is going to be 150, 160 townhomes and two over twos. Keep the middle of the center and eventually the eastern portion of the property will be residential as well. So there's a theme, as you can see, with where what the kinds of deals that I'm looking to do now. And we're also looking at opportunities, you know, outside of this market. I mean, we're looking in the Carolinas. We're looking in uh, the eastern side of Florida, Georgia, you know, outside mm-hmm. Atlanta. So what you're basically doing is taking your retail mind and applying it. So how can we reconfigure this asset to maximize the retail that's there, maybe? Yes. And then add on other uses that might be complementary to it? Yes. Fundamentally? Yes. I mean, we still look at... And land and real estate in general as land. Like what is the highest and best use and what is feasible? I mean, you know, again, highest and best use would have been at Park Ridge. It would have been data center, but politically that was impossible. So you pivot and you do, you do what makes sense. Sure. So talk about Willard Retail and its services. It looks like you invest, develop, asset and property manage and lease. How do you implement and staff each of those disciplines? Do you work only on your own portfolio or do you represent other owners in leasing and management and why? No, we do. I mean, I, as I, th- I think I listed that statistic. I mean, we, we have probably half of our portfolio leasing port- leasings or properties that we own or have an ownership interest in and at least, you know, 40%, hopefully more, will be third-party third listings. And just for leasing, just for leasing. Right. And we also manage third party. A lot of our, of our properties that we manage are third party. We don't, we don't have an ownership interest in all of them. We have an ownership interest in most of them, but not all of them. And we brought, so the guy who heads up our leasing group is a guy named, he's he's my partner is Chris Wilkinson. And Chris was a person that we hired at JBGR and loved Chris always from the, from the day we hired him. And he stayed when we sold the business to JBG. Chris went to JBG and was there until we brought him back over here. And now he runs our leasing group for us. 
And he has done a great job in bringing in a ton of new third-party clients. And also he's, cre- he's brought in a lot of good hires. So initially just him. And now we have him and three other people who are, who are doing leasing. We have a guy who runs our asset management group who, again, also used to work for us at JVGR, did asset management for us at JVGR. He did not work for JVG, though. He did work for another firm and moved around because his wife is a uh, pediatric surgeon. And so she was you know, moving to residency, and then she moved to get her permanent job, and, and she and he live in Atlanta. So he runs our asset management out of Atlanta. Hmm. And one thing that I've learned, and I'm now pretty comfortable with it is that many of your employees do not have to come in the office on a regular basis. And if you have the right people that are reliable and capable and in the right role, they can do those jobs from anywhere. So he, again, oversees the asset management. So he oversees all the, you know, interacts with the leasing with Chris and the leasing department oversees the accounting which is outsourced as well. We don't have in-house accounting. We have outsourced accounting. And, and then property managers, most of the property managers never come in the office. They work out of their houses and they have, they have home offices. And they do their work. You know, they go to the properties on a consistent basis, which is what they are supposed to do. And they don't need to come in the office very often. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I, you're like a virtual company to some extent. 50, we have 15 employees and seven of us come in here on a regular basis and the rest don't. Do you have and and the accountants never come in. Do you have off-sites where you get together as a group, as a company and do kind of planning and that kind of thing? Or we do. We have that. And, you know, we have company events. We have company outings. We have um, lunch that we have once a month. And people who don't, can't, don't want to come into the office or can't, like our um, lease administration, lease administrator is a... Um, a woman who lives in Connecticut. And so all the people that wanted to come in today for lunch for pizza came in and she's up on the screen virtual and whoever wants to be up on the screen virtual is up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great that you're flexible in that regard. So I think it's the future. I think it's, I mean, and I've seen other firms and I won't name them who have edicts. Like you must come in the office and, yeah, I mean, and there are things that are going to get missed by not going in the office and not interacting on a regular basis, but you're also going to lose some people. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It seems that every company has a niche and they carve out that they carve out in the market. You have significant competition in each of the disciplines you talked about. How talk about Willard's niche and how you thrive, where you thrive in that niche in leasing, let's say. Talk right, about well, leasing. Let's start with that. Well, I, I guess really more broadly, I would say we're adaptable. I mean, uh, we, we see trends and move with trends. Okay. And I would say like a person whose career is the, probably the closest to mine and, and who's done something similar is Taylor Chess. And Taylor sees trends and he follows them. And, you know, he and I have always, we've been always been, we've known each other for you know 30 plus years. And our careers have been similar and we see things, we see things similarly, I mean, in terms of, of, you know, real estate investing and development. And so I would say 
just be flexible and adapt. And Willard is, is that, I mean, you know, if we have always been, I'm used to the capital, I mean, to um, a private equity model of looking for yield and opportunistic yield. And so the deals that we look at, like we don't look at single digit return deals. They're just not, you know, they're just not appealing. And maybe I don't, you know, you know, I doubt that we will ever look at deals like that, that would, that would be appealing just because the kind of capital that we, that's attractive to, or that is attracted to us is also looking for those kinds of returns. And one thing, you know, there are, one thing we don't have are, are very many deals that are sort of legacy assets. And I have sort of mixed feelings about that. You know, there are, there's one center that we developed, you know, 15 years ago that we still own. That's, you know, great center, Market Square at Frederick. And I still own it. And it's great. And I get, you know, a distribution every quarter. And I wish I had more of those, you know. But, and there are a few assets that we've developed over the years that I wish we still owned, but there's a lot that I said that I'm glad that, that we don't for a variety of reasons. And the three that I wish I still owned are we bought Village Center at Dulles years ago from, you remember Batman? Of course. We bought it, we bought it, well, Batman was being basically foreclosed, mm-hmm. being squeezed by yep. the, the... Had the bill tower on it. Exactly, it still does. Yes. Third, third no trust holder, put the squeeze on him. And we got in, you know, through there and then, you know, took over, took over the property, repositioned it and then sold it to Regency who still owns it. Mm -hmm. And that property hums, it still hums. So I'm sad we don't own that. And I'm sad we don't own downtown crown because that is kind of irreplaceable. Right. And then King of Prussia. Yeah. Interesting. But you just, well, we took the capital and, you know, again, we used it for other things. Yeah. There you go. Interesting. So, um, when you hire people, what characteristics do you look for? Well, intelligence, again, you know, creativity, flexibility, and affability. You know, I mean, not necessarily in that order. It sort of depends on. Would you hire somebody right out of college and teach them the business, or are you looking for people with some experience? It depends on the position. Okay. You know, like for if, if Chris needed a, a, a junior leasing person, I mean, maybe I'd rather have one year of experience doing something else, you know, but I, we'd be, a, we'd be open to that. So even a sales experience of some sort. Like some sort, had, exactly. Like you had when you right. started. Right. Because it's not an easy sell. It no. is a complicated sales, you know, sales process. So having some, you know, one... A little polish, a little expert, you know, a little background doesn't won't hurt, wouldn't hurt. Same with property management. We have not hired a prop. No, we we would we would have to hire a property manager who's got some experience. I mean, they just mm-hmm. I mean that's maybe it's our second job, but you know we I don't know. And we did it a couple of times at JBGR, and you know, there's a heavy learning curve, so it would be it's always preferable I think to have a little bit of experience. Mm-hmm. And you outsource other things basically. Right. Accounting and yes. and all that. So yes. okay. you worked in, and dealt with perhaps thousands of people in your career. Which people have stood out to you as inspirations and why? You mentioned Taylor Chess. So well, Taylor stood out, you know, Rob Rosenfeld, because he's one of the smarter people I know and great judgment and careful and methodical. And, 
really good judgment though, and has an interesting uh, way of, of negotiating. And then, and the way he negotiates is this, like it's a, it's a, it's a uh, response of indifference, (laughs) which if somebody really wants to sell you something or buy something from you, it works. You just go, eh. <laughs> and, eventually, and if they really want to really want what you have, they'll keep coming, you know, and I love it. I've, I've, I've watched him for decades now do that. And, and so I really respect him. Rob Stewart, who, you know, I really respect his, um, his, his mind and the way he thinks about real estate and the way he thinks about investing. And he's taught me a tremendous amount. The Brian Coulter, who's, you know, I've watched him over the years and I, and I really like the way his measured approach to things and the way he interacts with people and how he treats, you know, all, all his employees with consideration and, you know, and fairness. And those are the, the names that really, you know, pop into my, pop into my head. And there's other people who I've interacted with who at different firms over the years who I think, I mean, there's certain people, certain entrepreneurs who I really respect, you know, what they created out of nothing. You know, that I always respect that. I always respect the person who didn't get handed anything and creates, you know, something out of nothing because it's not, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. So I really respect that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I know you have an equity partner who is sitting in this office. You probably have a lot, a lot of respect for us. Absolutely. Yes. Rich. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And Todd, I've known him since we worked together at, in fact, when, when Todd went to declaration and then, you know, I was out looking for a capital partner, you know, I came, went to him and, you know, obviously we ended up being, you know, marrying up. So it was, it was fortuitous that I knew him. It was fortuitous that I respected him and respected his intellect. And, you know, obviously he picked a, a great, capital partner, you know, astute investor to affiliate himself with. So, you know, hopefully it's been, you know, a symbiotic partnership. The new owner of the Baltimore Orioles. I know, which is astounding, (laughs) isn't it? It's incredible. What are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? Um, Well, I've only been married once, 30 this year will be November will be 35 years. I have three sons. Thank you. I have three sons and they're 31, 28 and 26. And my, you know, my priorities have always been, you know, spend as much time with your family as you can spend as much time with your friends as you can and, you know, have a, a broad interest pool. And in terms of giving back, I spent a fair amount of time doing non well, I mean, probably I should do more, but a reasonable amount of time doing nonprofit work. So I've been on a few boards. I'm still on the board of an organization called OAR, which is an acronym for Opportunities, Alternatives, and Resources. And we work with people in the criminal justice system, justice-involved individuals, and and work with them while they're incarcerated and then when they get out to help them, you know, to um, get reacclimated and get jobs and educate them while they're incarcerated and so on, help with their families and do what we can. That's great. What are your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? Well, 
I mean, so I don't know if they're surprising, but the winds were some of those great, they were just so interesting to do those mixed use projects, you know, and seeing a piece of land and, and having a vision and then, you know, being able to take that vision and turn it into something that, you know, will be here after I'm gone, you know? So development really. Yeah. I really liked, I really liked doing, I liked doing development and I would probably like to do it again, you know, but mm-hmm. it's. And if the right opportunity shows itself, we will. We will do it again. I mean, it, at you know, Cascades Marketplace, we're redeveloping. So in essence, we're doing it. It's just not quite. It's 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 a little different because it's not a raw piece of land sure. that we're that we're looking at. And some of the things I've learned along the way, the hard knocks are like we did that Tyson's West deal where we did the Walmart. That was the worst financial deal I ever did that I was ever invested in because we ended up paying too much for the car dealership that was there. It was a Cadillac dealership. Mm -hmm. And then we bought a Sheridan hotel next to it and overpaid for that. And so that deal, you know, was a complete wash, you know, even though the first phase is successful, but the overall investment was not a good one. That's too bad. Yeah. And then we built Woodland Park Crossing in Herndon. And it's a super attractive project. I'm very proud of its appearance, you know, in the way that it, it looks. But we broke too many rules, retail rules. And if you if you know what I mean by that is we put too much density on a small site, on an 80-acre site. We put 140,000 feet of retail and 200 apartments in a suburban surface parked environment. Mm-hmm. And I learned the hard way that you can't do that. and Or you can, but it's going to be challenging to make it successful if there are competing retail centers that are surface parked, easier access, or at least perceived easier access. So was leasing difficult there? And not initially because it was super attractive. So we leased it up and then we sold it and it was expensive to build too, because we did most of the parking for the retails underground. So we had to do, you know, we knew there was rock, but there was more rock than we thought so it was expensive to develop. And then we, we since we sold it, I've, I go back there, you know, periodically just to, to, see, to look at it. And the retail has not done very well. And I don't think it's a very successful Harris Teeter, you know. And again, because it's competing with a bunch of surface park, easy, more visible, act, you know, sites. So I, you can't live and learn. Right? Yeah. And you can't force retail. And I learned that over the years. Because I've watched a lot of people have come to me with sites that either like in Arlington, you know, for the county forced every developer to have every street, Main Street, have retail on the first floor of every building. And it didn't work. And now they, you know, they've acknowledged that. So a lot of times developers would come to me and the county, a lot of planners, you know, they bought into that vision. And then people would come to me and they go, do you think you can make this retail work? And I'd go, No. (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. You know, some people don't want to hear that. You know, they they go, well, what do you mean? And I go, well, you know, you're just not the right place for retail. Well, I, I didn't put this on a, on a list of questions, but I'm going to throw out, you just mentioned it, looking at downtown Washington right now, if you were leasing down there, how would you manage that process? What what would you do to, to fire things up? Well, we have, we have some listings down there. You know, a fair number of listings. In the CBD. Yeah. And it's going to be challenging. I would try, I would make zoning. I would re- I would reduce 
requirements for to make buildings less expensive to develop. Mm-hmm. I would allow a ton more residential as fast as you can make it happen. Because yep. I don't think office is coming back anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm, I interviewed a fellow by the name of Matt Pestronk, who's with Post Brothers. Oh, I know who he is. Yeah. And they're doing two huge right. mixed-use developments. Right, those old office buildings. Yeah. yeah. One in Connecticut, two on Connecticut Avenue, and then one over on M Street. Right. Big projects. Huge. 600 projects. units plus. I know. I wish them well. I hope it works. It's going to be interesting to see yeah. how that plays out. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Um, you know, maybe be, you know, be calmer, you know, know that, give yourself more leeway, you know, be, but, but, but I say that, and then I don't know that I would have had to drive, you know, if I wasn't anxious, you know, the anxiety, which is painful when you go through it and makes, you know, maybe other people's lives around you, not so pleasant, (laughs) but it gives you drive, you know, but in the end, for what? You know, what's the anxiety, what does it, what does it lead to? I mean, I hope I was a good father. I hope I've been a good husband. I, I, I know, I mean, I think I've been a good friend to a lot of people. And I just say, focus on that, you know, think, think about that more maybe than you did when you were in it. You know? mm-hmm. And everybody who's a young parent, you know, you, it's like, well, you're in it. It just feels so overwhelming, but nothing's better as you get to our age, you know, and you look back and like, that's what you think about. Well, I reflect back and I think, you know, I wish I had been uh, a little more present for my children. That, I, totally, totally. You know, yeah. just be there with them. I did take the liberty of reading to them every night. Yeah, me too. At bed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I spent at least an hour before they go to sleep. Right. So that was at least one luxury I had. Right. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say for you? Be kind and listen to others. That's almost identical to the one I gave. Is that right? Yeah. Almost identical. Yeah. That's great. Well, because I know what I think. And, you know, you need to know what other people think. And being mean doesn't get you anywhere. Grandy Hat, thank you very much for joining me on I Got to Thank you, John. Thanks for the interview. Appreciate it.